0: The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Dying of the Light Episode 3 Of all the things to happen next, I hadn't anticipated breakfast, and in a greasy spoon no less. But there we were, Miss Crown and I, feasting on omelets in a corner booth of Uncle Joe's diner. The place was alive with activity, the stools packed with lunchers. I'm surprised I've never been here, I mumbled. I live just down the way. Do you? said Miss Crown. In Point Breeze? That's right. Miss Crown sipped her coffee. You'll forgive the crowd. I can assure you nobody will care what we discuss here. I set down my fork and dabbed at my mouth. I'm just glad to get some food in me. I wasn't myself before. Miss Crown nodded distantly. Before we go on, Mr. Price, I must ask you a personal question. Perhaps the most personal question. Go on. During this courtship with Miss St. Clair, have you ever, shall we say, consummated your relationship? My jaw dropped. I beg your pardon? No, I beg yours, she persisted, as unaffected as ever. It's vitally important that you tell me. Have you made love to her? No, I said. Uh, That is not in the way you mean. You're sure about that? Of course I'm sure. I should know if I had, shouldn't I? I'm glad to hear it, said Miss Crown. Tilly said as much, but if there's anything a woman will lie about, it's that. I'm no blushing schoolboy, if that's what you mean, I said. I have plenty of experience, Paris and all. Oh, I'm sure you have. I've known my share of artists, Miss Crown cracked a smile. Why should it matter, though? I gulped down my fear. Is she pregnant? Perish the thought, said Miss Crown. "'Anyway, she's not the one I'm worried about.' "'You're worried about me?' "'Precisely. But why?' "'Let me ask you something,' Miss Crown said, leaning into her crossed arms. "'Did it ever make you wonder why you only met Tilly at night?' "'I can't imagine what my expression looked like to her. "'Well, she wanted to take in the nightlife,' she said.' And, well, I'm something of a night owl myself. In five weeks, you never met in the daylight. Did you ever wonder why? Well, no, I guess I didn't. Now suppose, continued Miss Crown, that the machine you saw, the one in her bedroom, wasn't drawing blood, but infusing blood. I sat back in my seat, the leather upholstery crunching beneath me. My word. That never occurred to me either. It's natural, said Miss Crown. You see your sweetheart lying there, an IV stuck in her arm, some strange machine, and you're right. No one has seen it before. Why not? Because it's a prototype. A special kind of machine. It contains blood. It preserves it. It keeps the platelets healthy. If it works, the machine will store blood for months, maybe years. But is Tilly sick? Is something wrong with her? Now, I want you to think outside the box, said Miss Crown, pushing her empty plate to the edge of the table. I want you to clear away your presumptions. Can you do that? I I suppose I ought to. What kind of presumptions? As you say, Tilly could be the love of your life. But you must admit, she's a girl you've known for only a smidge more than a month. People have married in less time, I retorted. They have, yes. But suppose we review two simple facts. Tilly is only awake at night, and she needs great quantities of fresh blood. I snickered. (laughs) Miss Miss Crown, the way you say it, she sounds like Count Dracula. She stared at me, hard. She does at that. A wave of emotion rolled over me. I felt cold and dizzy. I couldn't draw a single breath. Tilly, sweet, wild, impulsive Tilly, had never set foot in the sunlight. She was pale so very pale, a real-life China doll, in Xania's words, always cooped up in her house. How long had she spent there, sequestered, before she came to the party next door? Years? Decades? No wonder no one had ever seen her. She lived only by night, only the moon for company, and yet... That's preposterous, I spat. It's insanity. And it's also true returned Miss Crown. She rested a hand on my wrist, and I couldn't find the strength to pull it away. And she's not alone. Wait, you don't mean... Her father, too? Now you're getting the picture. Mr. St. Clair? He's a... Uh, uh... I couldn't say the word aloud. I might never be able to say the word. Now do you see, said Miss Crown. Imagine, you need fresh blood, human blood. If you have no conscience, the world is your buffet. You can feast on strangers in the alley. Men, women, children. What does it matter to you as long as you fill your veins? And for many of them, believe me, that's exactly how they operate. But suppose that thought repels you. No matter how you hunger, You can't stomach hunting down a human being like any deer in the forest. What do you do, then? Do you starve? Do you give up, step into the sunrise and burn yourself to a cinder? Or do you find victims who are already as good as dead, who have already lived out their natural lives, folks so ill or incapacitated they won't even know they're dying? "'The hospice?' I choked. "'He was there to... to...?' "'Yes,' said Miss Crown. "'He has an arrangement, with the superintendent. "'They're mercy killings. "'The patient must be comatose, beyond the point of no return, "'in nearly every sense already gone.' "'Dear God!' I slid down the booth, My breaths, hard and fast. Nausea whirled inside me. Miss Crown persisted. Even then, even if you had a willing accomplice, even if the crime was victimless, wouldn't you regret it? Drinking the last life from a living, breathing person. And for what? To sustain your own existence. Wouldn't you yearn for an alternative? A way to survive? but without harming any living soul. Even in my delirium, my doubt, my denial, I still understood. The machine, I said. Is that what it's for? Yes, said Miss Crown. That is the experiment. And if it works, none of their kind will ever have to kill again. Stalking prey Biting into necks, disposing of bodies, it will all be a thing of the past. She paused to pluck a hair from her mouth. But only if it works. I rubbed my temples. This can't be happening. This can't be real. Come on, said Miss Crown. Let's get some air. Somehow, the check was paid. Somehow, we lurched through the crowd. I must have looked awful, bumping past the other diners, haggard and sweating through yesterday's clothes. But I was drowning in thoughts. The world barely registered. Even the sound of traffic outside, the yapping of a dog, the spritz of rain, couldn't distract me from my grievances. Look, said Miss Crown, Julianne and Tilly are the same as they ever were. They're still good people. You're right to love her. And now, knowing what she's trying to do, you have all the more reason to love her. I do, I cried. I do with all my heart. Miss Crown leaned against a mailbox. She bit her lip pensively. But, Wit, you have to understand. They're sick. They have an ailment, and there is no cure. And this sickness, well, it can spread. Spread? I bellowed. How so? Miss Crown looked down the tracks at an approaching streetcar. This is my ride, she said. I'll be in touch. But w- w- what do you mean? I begged. How does it spread? The streetcar squealed to a halt. Miss Crown bounded forward, climbing the steps. The bell clanged. She turned toward me, offered a grave smile and said, Consummation, wit. If you consummate your love, you'll never see daylight again. There are things I never tell anyone. I never talk about my brother, Jack. I never describe him the way he was. Smart, strong, a great football player, a great joke teller. He was halfway through college when he caught a cold, and that cold became Spanish flu. And suddenly, he was gone. I never describe what that loss did to my mother and father. How forcefully they decided never to speak of it. How efficiently they erased his photographs from walls and albums. I never explain why I left for Europe, hopped a steamer out of Baltimore, and lived like a vagabond in the slums of Paris. That whole year, I punished the world for taking Jack. I painted bad paintings, and I drank every bottle I could find. I slept in strange beds, and I paid for the privilege. I reeked of unwashed clothes. And when I came back, ragged and road-weary, I wasn't a student, and I wasn't an artist. I wasn't even that great a drifter. I was just the son of a wealthy financier. The only son. The last of my line. Lazing about the house, waiting for night to fall so I could spend my father's money on nightclubs and reckless drives in the country. Only Xenia knows the truth. I won't collect a dime from my inheritance until I'm married. It's a silly problem, but still a problem. I've had no need to marry. Never did I want some poor girl to endure a moneyed wastrel like me. But then again, what else was I doing? What other aspirations did I have? I have long given away any canvas I painted. It was too late for school or a trade or public service. These past four years, my life has been a dreamless sleep, and I've found no reason to wake. And then Xania arranged that party, invited a hundred people, just so I could meet a girl named Tilly, some stranger she thought was so swell. And I went, and I saw her, and against my better judgment, I knew. Instantly, incontrovertibly, that she was the girl I would love the rest of my life. With every passing minute, my certainty grew. We seemed designed for each other. She lifted me out of the doldrums. She made nonsense into sense. This is another truth I never speak. Not because I must suppress it, but because it feels too sacred to say aloud. Now, I'm here, standing before the gate. I see Jarvis, that hunchbacked old butler, hobbling from the front door. He greets me with the usual grin, but now I see something else. His pallid skin, his waxen face. I realize, all of a sudden, even Jarvis hides himself at dawn. The three of them, in this house, suffer the same condition. Together, they share the same dark secret. And now, at last, I share that secret as well. Inside, Julianne St. Clair is nowhere to be seen. There's only Tilly, sitting in a high-backed chair. For once, the hearth is full of fire. I sniff the scent of burning logs. Orange light flickers across Tilly's cheeks, and I see that she's smiling. I go to her. I kneel down. I kiss her hand. I lay my head in her lap. I feel the warmth of flames, the cool of her skin, and it all feels so good, so right. I love you, I say. Her fingers stroke my hair. I feel a droplet on my forehead. I look up, and for the first time, I see her cry. Tears of joy. I know everything, and she knows I know. Let me show you something, she says. We get up, and we go to the sliding door. We step inside, and I see those piles of cinema reels. Tilly goes to the projector, and she flips a switch. Light pours out, and images dance against the wall. She adjusts the focus, and I see wild mustangs galloping across a prairie. The muscles pulsate behind their flaring manes. There is no sound or color, only the silent grayscale of moving pictures This was how I learned about the world, she says. For sixty-three years, all I had were books, and then photographs, and then movies. And then, at last, my father let me go out. He trusted me to step out our door. He wanted me to taste real life, like any other girl. And then, I met you. Tilly rounds the projector and presses herself against me. We hold each other in the shifting threads of light. So much time within these walls, fighting those desires, praying for a cure, dreaming that one day she could walk among regular men and women, imagining what it was like to step onto a tennis court and smack a ball over a net. Draw me, she looks up into my eyes, I want you to draw me. And for the first time, I remember what it's like to put a pencil to paper, to turn lines into shapes and shapes into figures and figures into portraits. I want to draw her again and again, even if it means a century in the dark, a machine to keep us fed, a secret way of being. For her, I would pay any price, even the dying of the light. This concludes The Dying of the Light, Episode 3. Written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. Music provided and licensed by AudioBlocks.com. If you like what you're hearing, you may also enjoy The Mysterious Tongue of Dr. Vermilion and Other Stories, the first volume in the Elizabeth Crown series, available in paperback. Ebook and audiobook. And keep an eye out for future titles in the Elizabeth Crown series, due out later this year. For more information about the exciting world of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net.